and remaining, uh, we're going to take our Bibles and turn to the first page in your Bible, well, maybe the second page in your Bible, uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis, we're going to be looking particularly in, at the end of Genesis chapter 1 and throughout Genesis chapter 2 uh, as we continue on in our look at the threefold office of Christ as he is prophet, priest, and king. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1. We'll read verses 26 through the end of the passage, and then we'll pray and we'll dive into our uh, time this evening. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to come before your throne to look to your word. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts through your word today. Father, I pray that we would seek to understand and learn Uh, why we have been created, and Father, that we would be challenged uh, to look to Christ as the fulfillment of what we have been created for, that He is the one who takes us who have broken and ruined our lives through sin, that the fall has taken and and torn us away from the purpose for which we were, were created, and we find in Christ the fulfillment of the roles that you have for mankind, and our hope that we can be restored, Father, and that we can be reconciled with you. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit today. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we've been spending some time looking at these threefold offices, and we spent, I don't know, a long time looking at the office of prophet that Christ had. And then just before we went through the Christmas season, we finished up looking at the priestly office, And so we have prophet, priest, and that leaves us with which one left? King. We're going to be looking at the kingly office of Christ. And uh, again, what we've seen as we've looked at all of these things is that God initially, when he created mankind, he intended for human beings to fulfill these offices themselves. That he charged and, and gave his word to Adam, who was to guard it and to tell it to his family, that he worked and, and, uh, and related to Adam and Eve directly, that they were priests to God. 
And then what we're going to look at, particularly this evening, is how God created us to be sovereigns, how God created us to be kings and rulers on the earth. And so we're going to look at this evening the dominion mandate of creation, particularly the creation of mankind. That's what we just looked at here in Genesis chapter 1, God saying he's going to make humanity. And if you look with me here in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, there's something that makes humanity different than everything else. And that is the fact that man is made in the image of God. So we see that in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The one thing that differentiates humanity from the rest of creation is that we are made in the image of God. We are made to share God's image. Now, it is important that we keep in mind, we are made in God's image. What humanity, because of sin, wants to do is we want to switch that, and we want to make God in our image. That is why there is such a prohibition on idolatry and graven images because it is us conceiving of God based upon ourselves rather than knowing the God who is. So it's vitally important that we understand God is not made in our image. We are made in His. Now, if you were to open up a commentary on Genesis 1 or you were to read a a book about uh, what we call anthropology or the study of humanity, um, there is a lot of discussion on what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of God. And there's a number of different ways that people have sought to look at that, a number of different things that they've sought to, to say, well, this is what the image of God is, the fact that we have emotions, uh, the, fact that, uh, um, the fact that we have a will, the fact that uh, we, we're, we're called to do certain things in the same way that God does. There are communicable attributes of God that we share that the animals don't share. And a, a lot of it is conjecture. A lot of it is looking at clues and hints in Scripture. But I think it's interesting here that I think clearly implied in the image of God is the fact that human beings are meant to have dominion, that we are meant to rule and reign. But if you think about God as the creator, he is also the sovereign of the universe. He is the one who rules and reigns ultimately over everything. And if we see here in, in Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then what is the first thing that God says that man is to have as a result of that? Let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then it's emphasized again. So as God made this statement saying that mankind is to have dominion, what does he do? He creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we see it even in the command that God gives to humanity. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we recognize is that the image of God in man, at least to some extent, implies a dominion mandate. It is hard-baked into the way God has made us. We are meant to rule and to reign 
over his creation. It's clear from the mandate given here in this passage. Man is different from the rest of creation. We're not like the animals. We're not like the plants. Regardless of what the the world would have us believe and regardless of how they would try to almost create a pantheism of this idea God is in everything, we, human beings, are the only ones made in God's image. And that makes us separate or holy from the rest of creation. And then that dominion that we have is clearly implied by how God says we're going to make man in our image and we're going to give him dominion. We're going to make them particularly, if we see in verse 27, male and female. And we're going to look in just a few moments of the significance of that, but this dominion mandate that God has given, it is meant to be shared by both man and woman. And in fact, there is an incompleteness to the dominion mandate if man continues without a wife. And so God created man in his image. And that image clearly implied the idea of dominion. Now, let's see more particularly that mandate stated. Look with me here again in Genesis chapter 1, and particularly in verse 28. God blessed them. Now, it's important to note here, God is not acting as a, uh, as a deist would have him act. All right? If you heard of what deism is, or the idea of the deist movement, it was that God is sort of the great watchwinder, that he created everything, he sort of turned the key and, and got the gears going, and then just sort of set the universe in place and let it run out, and he doesn't interact with humanity. That's not at all the case. In fact, after he created man, it was necessary for him to bless them. I think it's important that we recognize this reality that even before sin entered the world, the providential blessing of God was necessary for humanity to do what they were called to do. We are made in God's image, but we are also made dependent on him. There is no such idea, even in creation, of independence that mankind has. He blesses them. And then he says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. And so I think it's important to note, first of all, that this mandate required a mandate of procreation. God called man to multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because the earth needed to be subdued. This role of ruling and reigning over humanity required man not to just stick with Adam and Eve, but to spread out. That they would have to multiply in order to fulfill this dominion mandate. And so I I just think as we look back at God's intentions for humanity, we recognize this reality. God determined to bring the world under the subjection of humanity through procreation, through children coming into the world, so that there would be others who would fill out that particular mandate. Now notice what he says. He blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over. So there we see the two commands here of what this is involving. We see, first of all, it is a mandate of rule. 
God gives two related commands to Adam and Eve. And again, notice he says this not just to Adam, but he says it to who? To them, plural. This dominion mandate was meant to be fulfilled by both man and woman. And he tells them, first of all, to fill the earth, multiply, fill the earth, so that they can subdue it. Now, what is this idea of subduing mean? What, what, is, what is Moses referring to here? What is God calling humanity to do? Well, the idea here is the idea of domination. It means literally to tread down, to squeeze, or to mold. And there may be in this command a hint to Adam and Eve that there would be, even in a perfect um, environment, there would be opposition that would come their way, that there would be, that, hum- that creation would perhaps press against or resist the dominion of humanity. This hint of opposition is set, right, recognizing that Adam and Eve were going to have to fill the earth and, and their descendants are going to have to rule creation, not the other way around. That that which is created is not to influence or have the power over humanity, but the humanity is to rule over that. Now, when we think about this and we fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, we begin to see that there may have even been a hint of warning here to Adam and Eve about the temptation that would come. Adam and Eve were tempted by a... Were they tempted by another human being? Were they tempted by God? Obviously not. They were tempted by what? A serpent. And that serpent was a part of God's created universe. And so there is this idea that the failure of Adam and Eve to, of course, not to obey God's word and to, and to, to you know, bring humanity into and cast them into sin, there's an idea here that this also brought about the idea that they failed to exercise that dominion. They were to rule over the serpent. They were not to let the serpent rule over them. They're the ones given the authority over the earth, not creation. So they're to subdue the earth. And then it says they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this term here is a more explicit term for the idea of ruling. This is an explicit command from God for Adam and Eve to act as sovereigns, to act as those to whom creation is, in one sense, to pay homage to. They are to be kings and queens of all that God has created. They're to be occupied with the administration of what God has created. And this, of course, is an authority that they don't have because of who they are, but rather they derive this authority from who? Who gives them this authority? God does. And we need to keep that in mind as well. Who does God derive authority from? It, no one. There's, because if, if God derived authority from someone, then would he be God? Would he be the greatest power in the universe? No. So God derives no authority from anyone. He just has that authority. But humanity, we derive our authority from God himself. He allocates the dominion of earth to humanity if they follow his instructions. 
So we see very clearly a mandate given in the creation of mankind to rule and to reign over the earth. Now, what exactly is involved in that mandate? What is it that God is calling Adam and Eve to do? And we see the mandate described for us in Genesis chapter 2. So look with me down to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. Genesis 2, verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Notice, he, not, none of these plants had grown, and it was because, first of all, there hadn't been water given there, and what else was missing? Humanity. Humanity was not there. There was no one to work the ground. So there was a mist going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, what does God do? He forms the man of the dust of the earth, of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there... He put the man whom he had formed. And then jump down with me to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and this garden that he created, he puts him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely what? Die. You shall surely die. So, what do we see here? Well, we see, first of all, there is a call for Adam and Eve to work and keep the land. Now, if you remember when we started talking about the priestly office, these two words, work and keep, were actually used in Leviticus to describe the role of the Levites. The Levites were to work and keep, and the, the term work there is, is translated in Leviticus as serve. They were to work and keep or the temple. They were to serve before the temple and the, and the tabernacle. So we have this idea of serving or caring for what God has created looking after the world that God had created. And then there's, of course, the idea that there's agricultural work involved here. They're to work the land. They're to keep the land. But it's not just a, a duty that they do. It's not just a, um, an effort that they exert without rewards. They're also called to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Look, you may surely... Eat of what? Every tree of the garden. You, you know, I'm putting you in this garden. I'm making it so that you can tend it and care for it. And you can eat of everything that comes as a result of your dominion. That your dominion would produce joyous results for you. Any tree here you can see and you can take. But one. And while they're called to work and keep the land and enjoy the fruits of the labor, they're called to do it by obeying God's requirements. God puts them in the garden. He says, look, you, can, you have all this here. You have all that's provided for you here, but 
There's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it. Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. Now, we could fast forward to Genesis chapter 3 and we could see that one of the results of mankind's sin is that God, of course, curses the serpent. He curses Adam. He curses Eve. But what else does he curse? All of creation. Now, that should have been understood in what God is saying here. Because notice, he doesn't create the garden. He doesn't have the bush and and the plants grow there until he places man in the garden to keep it. And so there's a a reality that all of creation is going to rise or fall based upon the way in which humanity exercises the dominion that God has given it. And the day that they disobeyed God's command, they would die. And then that would mean that this creation that God had given to man to rule, there would be no king. There would be no ruler. That there would be nothing to care for and to tend the world. And we can even see this result in what happens as a result of man's sin. Instead of it being a fruitful, wondrous, easy life for them to enjoy the fruits of their labor, what comes as a result of the curse? Briars and thorns. The, the, The world becomes wild because it's sovereign's. Those tasked with dominion over it have died. Now, I think of what we see. We see this, of course, we're Americans. We don't believe in monarchies here. You know, we rebel against the monarchies and everything here in in America. But if, if you saw what happened recently with the death of the queen in England, it was a sorrowful moment for that entire nation. Their sovereign had died. And there's, even today, even in America, you hear them talk about and be concerned about what's going to happen to the British monarchy. What's, how's, this, how's the role that the queen had going to be continued or carried out? If the death of a monarch is a scary thing. And God gave humanity the ruling and reigning over all of the earth. And as they failed, they died and they abdicated the throne bringing about serious consequences for those placed under their rule. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how all of creation is groaning under sin. There's a lot of things that could be said about this, but just just a couple things. First of all, sin is never just about you. Sin affects and distorts and destroys much more than consequences just for yourself. We think that sin is something that we can handle, that we can keep its results contained to just our own lives. And and we maybe will even fool ourselves. Well, it's only harming me. But the reality is sin destroys almost everything you touch. There's also... A reality here that as Adam and Eve work the garden, 
Notice that they're called not to take and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but does that mean that they're not supposed to tend the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, the reality here is they were to care for that tree. They were to, to take care of it. It was placed under their dominion. They weren't to take its fruit, but yet they were to take care of it. And so by working and yet not partaking of it, Adam would know only the goodness of everything else. This is, you know, we think of this tree as sort of like, sometimes I think we get this idea that its fruit had some sort of magic properties. That, oh, we ate of it and all of a sudden, you know, it, because of the fruit, there was this amazing change. It's not the fruit itself, it's the obedience to God's command that it seeks to do. How would Adam and Eve know goodness? Don't eat of the tree. And if they continued perpetually in that, what would they only know? The goodness of the fruit of the garden. That's all they would experience. That's all they would know would be goodness if they stayed away from the tree. But when they took of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now, not, now they don't know just goodness, now they know evil. They know sin. And it begins immediately in affecting who they are. If Adam had simply reigned and obeyed God's command, there would only be blessing. There would only be goodness. There would only be delight. I think we sometimes think of God's commandments as God keeping good things from us. God calls us to not engage in sinful activities, not because He's keeping good from us. He's wanting to protect us from evil. And we need to recognize that and know that His way is best. That if we follow His way and look to His way, we will only know goodness. As the psalmist said, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So the mandate we see described, keep, work and keep the land, enjoy the fruits of labor, and obey God's requirements. Now, God does not just stick Adam and Eve in the garden and say, this is what you're supposed to do, figure it out. He also provides exactly what they need to do it. And so we see provision for the mandate. We see that there's provision given for food through creation. Look back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Genesis 1, 29. God said, Behold, I have given you, right, so I've given to Adam and Eve, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for what? Food. God provides exactly what is needed for humanity. Look, look back in chapter two, look forward in chapter two, verses eight through nine. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is what? Pleasant to the sight and good for food. And there was the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God provides abundantly 
for humanity. He doesn't just provide for humanity. We look in verse, um, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30. He says, To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has been given breath for life, I've given every green plant for food. So God doesn't just provide for Adam and Eve. He also provides for all of creation. Now, you know, if, if you look at one of the things that humanity struggles with, one of the things that humanity throughout history has struggled, particularly rulers, it is in providing food and sustenance to their subjects. Now, that's sort of foreign to us today because we walk into grocery stores and they're packed with food. You know, we're able to run to convenience stores and there's there's drinks available, there's food available. It, it seems like food insecurity is very, um, very unknown to us here in America. And praise God, that's the case. But you realize that America is not all that exists on this earth. You go to places in Africa where people are happy to have one small meal a day, maybe a little bit of rice and beans, and then that's all they get for the day. You can go back in history and you can see that particularly when monarchs, either by foolishness or by selfishness, don't prepare and don't provide for their subjects, there are devastating things that happen. Human history is full of famines due to either the foolishness of human rulers or their selfishness in hoarding things rather than providing for those to who have, they have been placed in charge of. In the garden, God provided sufficient provision. Plenty of food for Adam and Eve. Not just food. Like, it, it wasn't like God just provided, like, okay stuff. It's good. It's pleasant. It's delicious. It was not affected by sin. It would have been a delight for Adam and Eve to eat. And then, not only does he provide it for them, but he provides it for those subjects that he's given. The plants and the green, uh, the green plants of the earth are given so that the beasts of the field, the creeping things, the birds of heaven can have what they need to eat. And so God provides a provision of food for creation. He provides that provision of food. We see... Secondly, that God also provides for creation itself. Look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. Notice that there is a mist that is going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Remember, Adam and Eve were called to work the garden, right? Today, you know, one of the most key things in keeping a plant alive is doing what? Watering it. You have to water a plant. All right? That's one of the most fundamental things, fundamental aspects of keeping a plant. Notice for Adam and Eve, God made a mist come up. Not only that, but look in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 2. What God does is there's a river that he places in Eden. And that river is given for what purpose? To water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. 
where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Um, I never pronounced this one right, so I'm not going to pronounce it right now. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So, again, notice what, what God says. He takes Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden. He says, you're going to work this garden, you're going to keep it, but... I'm going to provide the food that you need, and I'm going to provide the food that the beasts need. You're to work and keep it, but I'm going to make a mist come up from the ground that's going to water the garden, and then I'm going to place a river in the garden. And from that river are going to be four other rivers that go every direction, north, south, east, and west, providing sustenance to the rest of the world that as you are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, you'll be able to subdue it with this continued provision. I mean, God is providing utterly everything that Adam and Eve need to fulfill this dominion role that God has given him, given them. But so we see this provision of food, we see this provision for creation. The final thing we see is the provision of a helper. Now, this is an interesting point that God does here. And again, notice when we look back in Genesis chapter 1, this dominion mandate that's given is given to both man and woman. God created man in his own image. He made them male and female, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. We see the reason for that given in verse, verses uh, 18 through 25 of chapter 2. God makes a conclusion in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now why? Why did God come to that conclusion? Well, we see a reason given Look at verse 19. Now out of the ground of the heavens, I'm, not out, now out of, I'm sorry, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So we almost have, here's Adam, Eve is not there. God has created Adam to be a king, to rule and reign this, this creation that God has made. He's like, all right, let's see how he does. I'm going to bring all the animals before him. And Adam and Eve is supposed to do what? Name them. Call them. What's he going to call these things? And so he brings them before the man, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Again, the king has said it. It's true. So we see the first act of dominion being exercised in the way Adam names the creatures. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There was not found a helper fit for Adam. It's amazing to see here that as Adam does this, he, it becomes evident that he needs a helper. Well, there's 
two possible reasons that have been placed as to why this is. The first is that as Adam is bringing the, er, as these beasts and these animals are being brought before Adam, they're being brought and he's recognizing that they have a partner, that they're, for them, for these animals to procreate and to grow, there's a male and a female. And so as Adam sees that and he sees this happening, he's recognizing for himself, well, I don't have anyone. But it also may be the very fact that Adam is exhausted by this charge. God brings all the animals, all the birds of the heaven, and all the beasts of the field. And Adam is called to take this task and to name them all. And so I, you know, I've seen things that say, you know, when, when the first animal came before Adam, Adam probably spent a lot of time really thinking hard about what, that, what he was going to name that animal. And then by the time it's like the 3,000th the animal, he's just throwing out names because it's so, it's so tiresome for him. He needs a helper. And so what does God do? So, verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place. And the rib that God, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last. It's interesting that he says, at last. He recognized the need for a helper. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And it's amazing here that it is not until Adam has a helper that God declares this is now good. Humanity's creation is now good. The goodness of man was not complete until Adam had a helper. The do dominion mandate given to Adam could not be successfully done without a helper. And so, understanding this reality, it really presses counterculturally against two extremes in our society. The first is the extreme of chauvinism that the man is the man, that the man can run roughshod over the woman, that the man is supposed to exercise dominion harshly in his family. Look, Adam was given a pretty easy task from the sense of how God had provided everything and he's just called to name the animals and it becomes evident he needs a helper. And so men who have wives, it is encumbered upon us. It is important that we recognize the role of helping that they are given by God for us to do. We're to love and cherish that. And the same thing is true about the other extreme of radical feminism that seeks to tell women you don't need a man. You can be over the man. By God's design, both Adam and Eve were equal in value and worth, and both were necessary to fulfill God's purposes for humanity. 
Humanity cannot accomplish the dominion mandate given to it by God apart from man and woman coming together. And what is amazing here is to notice that they will leave the father and the mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. One flesh. Working together to fulfill the role that God had given to them. So, God perfectly creates humanity. He gives them a mandate. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Look, creation is going to fight against you. You're going to have times where creation wants to rule over you. You must rule over it. He puts them in a perfect environment, providing everything they need, food, water for the plants that they're to tend. Gives them a garden that has fruit that is good for the eyes and helpful for them. Provides everything that man needs to fulfill that dominion mandate. And he gives Adam a helper. So that the two of them can go and fulfill what God has called them to be. That they could be sovereigns in this world. And yet we find when we turn to Genesis, we end Genesis chapter 2 like we just did. Man and his wife are together. They're not ashamed. They're exercising dominion. And then the serpent comes. The serpent comes to test the dominion of humanity. And we know how that ends. And we'll look at that more closely next week as we see that this dominion eludes humanity because of their failure to exercise it, and it upends and brings the entirety of creation under a curse. In many ways, the suffering that we face on a daily basis, the things that we struggle with day in and day out, the effects of sin, they come as a result of Adam and Eve not being kings of this world. And what we'll see as we go forward is that while we as humans fail in that role, is there a perfect king? Yes. And his name is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you as we've looked at this um, dominion mandate that's been given to us to rule and to reign, Father. Lord, and we, we look at it and we see the failure of our parents. We see the failure of Adam and Eve. And we'll soon see how that twists and distorts everything. But yet, Lord, we give thanks that we find in Christ a king who perfectly reigns. So, Lord, may we cast our hope upon him fully and completely. Father, as we also go about our day for the rest of this evening or this week up ahead we recognize that we are dependent upon your blessing your grace your strength to do what you've called us to do and father we thank you for uh, your strength for all things father take your word apply it to our hearts and lives may we seek to be more like the king of kings jesus christ 
We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. I'm done five minutes early, so enjoy it. (laughs) All right, we'll see you.